0: morning. Morning. Happy Father's Day. Seems like I've been here before. (laughs) I have heard that Pastor Brian has been taking you through a series of Ecclesiastes. Well, I am thankful that he finished that last (laughs) Sunday and he has allowed me to start his next series, which is the Gospel of Luke which I'm much more enjoyable than I commend him for tackling of that book. But we are going to begin a, a servant study, he says, on Luke, and we're going to take two chapters a week. So this month, this morning, we're going to do chapters one and two. Now, if any of you were in my Sunday school class, at any time, for me to be able to do two chapters in a one 30-minute time span is going to be a challenge because... Some of you remember we might have taken six weeks to do five verses in the Sunday School class, but we're gonna to try to tackle it this morning. We're going to work through the first couple chapters, gonna pick out some highlights and then talk about them and try to learn a little bit about Luke and, and the direction in which he writes. And so, to begin with this little little background on Luke, he was one of the four writers of the Gospels or the stories of Jesus, the narrations of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and out of the four Luke is the only one who was a non-Jewish writer. He is what they were known at the time as a Gentile, one without the Jewish background. And so uh, it's fascinating that, that we find him writing this book. He's, uh, he's, we know from Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that he is a physician. He is a doctor. And we know from the book of Acts that he was a companion of the Apostle Paul through the latter part of his missionary journeys. And so knowing a doctor and knowing the type of person he probably was, we can see probably a lot of details within his writing. A lot of things that the other ones may not bring out as much. You're going to see more of a historical narrative through this, rather than a lot of personal things that you would find in the Gospel of John or in Matthew and Mark when they would talk about specific audiences. Luke writes to the entire uh, nation, the Gentile nation. He writes with a non-Jewish perspective. And so he tries to bring a different view than the others. And so it's interesting, as we see what he, and how he comes about this. He writes about 30 years after the time of Jesus, when Jesus was on earth. He um, he brings a, a new perspective to the people. He writes to a man by the name of Theopolis. And Theopolis, is, he calls him honorable. He is also the same one who wrote the book of Acts. And so there's a two-volume type set here. And he writes both to Theopolis. And it seems to me that he is, he's talking to him about the truth, about some of the things that are going on in their lives. Uh, At this time, Rome is powerful. The nation of Rome is in control of the world at the time, and the the power of Rome is growing, and with that growth comes more of the persecution to the Christian community. A young group of people trying trying to establish themselves in their relationship and knowledge of Jesus, but with all that persecution coming. But the most fascinating thing to me about Luke was, knowing that he did not grow up under the teaching of the Jewish law, and that he is a Gentile, which basically was excluded from much of the understanding of the Jewish law, where do he get his information? How do you know what to write? Because he starts as early as any gospel in the birth of Jesus all the way to the end. So where do he get his messages? where do he get his ideas? And so we're going to begin right at the first four verses of Luke to hopefully get that. So let's begin with a word of prayer first. Lord Jesus, we are going to tell your story this morning, and we want to do it honorably and with respect and with, with knowing that we want to do it correctly. And so as we share these things, Lord, guide and direct us as we study together, as we share your word, and that we bring you alive in these scriptures. In your name we pray, amen. Beginning in chapter 1 of, of Luke, verse 1 says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have decided to write a careful account to you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So right there we get an idea of how Luke put together his gospel. It says that he had, uh, there was a lot of writings. Now, understand that we have four of them, but there are a lot more writings at that time about Jesus. These are just the four that were, were chosen to put into our Bible. But he has carefully examined all of them. He has talked about some eyewitnesses. He has worked through those things. And with that, he has compiled this book. Back in 1970, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, who have wrote some of the greatest musicals of time, Evita, uh, Joseph, the amazing coat, and wrote Jesus Christ Superstar. And in it, there's a line that goes, if you would have come today, you would have reached a whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Now imagine in, in 1970, I'm sure the communication process then was far different than the early parts when Jesus was alive and when they did it. But could you imagine what would happen today in the communication process of Jesus' came today. He would be on Facebook. I mean, people would be talking through him, all that. There would be, the, uh, there would be pictures taken everywhere of him. Uh, Twitter, I mean, the people would be tweeting about all the things that are going on. And so uh, to ask the question, why did he come back in the same I believe that God chose that particular time because what was most important for people to be able to understand and be able to find something is from personal testimonies. That's where you get your most original, most true things of how people respond to something. And so here's what, that's what Luke did. He went back and he, he interviewed these people who, who have eyewitness reports, all these. He came back, he, uh, he's a doctor, he's going through the details. He's going to write in a historic narrative compared to some of the other ones. And so he's going through all the details. You can imagine that a lot of the miracles are reported in the Gospel of Luke. Because the doctor's going to wonder how that happened. That doesn't fit in the way it goes. And so we see that he writes to Theophilus, and he says, I write to you to be certain of the truth of everything that you've been taught. Now, Theophilus, most honorably, was probably a Gentile. And with that, he is getting taught the gospel of Jesus or the life of Jesus. So Luke wants to make sure that he's getting it right, that he's being taught right. There's been 30 years since Jesus had walked the earth. And in 30 years, things could get changed can distorted the stories. Luke wants to make sure that what he's been taught is the truth, and so he's going to present that to him. So it's, it's, it's amazing how things can simply be um, changed in amount of time. So Luke's importance is that he gets it right. So as we, as we begin then, let's look at chapter 1 and just go briefly through chapter 1. We know that in chapter 1, Luke brings out some events that nobody else reports about. He reports about Zachariah and Elizabeth having uh, being promised a child, which turns out to be John the Baptist. A little later on there, Mary comes and she is promised also to have a child, and that child would in turn be Jesus. And he talks about the prophecies and the angels coming, and sets the stage for these two gentlemen who will be crucial in the events that will happen shortly through his gospel. And as he writes, he, he shares these events, and. So, obviously, he must have talked to somebody who was there. So, uh, you're getting more of the truth of what's happening with this process. And so, uh, you'll see times that he'll talk, as he talks about John the Baptist, he'll say, in the time of King Herod, because he'll he'll tie those things together. When Jesus is is promised, he'll say, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And, of course, chapter 2 begins with whatever we know, the Christmas story. Everybody probably has known that, whether you're a believer or non-believer, you've gone to church or whatever, everybody has heard the second chapter of the book of Luke. It's on Christmas cards. It's set on TV. It's all of that. Whether they're believers or not, we know the story. But there's a part of it which I have always been more fascinated about in in that that section of Scripture, and that's the shepherds. The shepherds were interesting people to me at that time. I, I spent many, many years at standing up here, and at times I would walk, look across the street over here, and it would just be filled with sheep. And I I, I would look out there, and I would see them working. I've i had personal experiences with sheep in the middle of the road that I've never had before. And so uh, uh, the shepherds have fascinated me. And so I, I think about that. Here they are, and I picture them just out there doing what they do. Every once in a while, a sheep gets away. They'll whack it on the back end. It goes back and does what it does. But here they get this great announcement. The announcement that the promised Messiah, the one who people have been waiting for, desiring for, and and hoping for is being announced to them. And they're so excited about it. And so in Luke chapter 2 verse 15, listen to this. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angels had said to them about this child. And all had heard what the shepherds' story were astonished. But Mary kept these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angels had told them. Something that's always in Scripture has been something that I try to always look at and stuff is we, we hear these individual stories that go on, these events that happen with these people. But what happens to them after, after we read here? What did the shepherds do? Well, we know that they returned back to their work and that they glorified and praised God. They, I believe that when you encounter Jesus, your normal is changed forever. It is no longer getting back to normal because now while they're out there, they're not just watching sheep, they're praising Jesus. They're giving Him glory. Their life has changed. And it is such a powerful change in their life that when they tell people, listen, they said when all had heard their story, they were astonished. They were shocked. They could not believe it. These are shepherds. How did they get this information? How did it happen to them? And and so as we see it expand, their lives were never the same again. And, and they begin this process of in their lives. They, they're sharing. I don't think it just stopped there. I think while they're out there, they continue to talk about Jesus. Because, and it's just the child. It's just the promise. He hasn't even done anything. He, he's, just, he's just a child. He had not done any miracles. But still, he astonished people by their testimony about him. Later on in chapter 2, we find the only real narrative that we have is Jesus as a young person. And again, how would Luke get that information? He had, must have talked to someone who was right there. I, I often wondered, did he sit down and talk to Mary? Wouldn't that be fascinating? Mary's telling him about the angels coming. The incident with the shepherd going to the manger all of that type of stuff, filling it in, talking about her Elizabeth and, and John the Baptist and all of these things, and he's putting this stuff together. But here he, he talks about and gives us one incident in which Jesus, as a youth, is recorded. And here it begins in chapter 2 of verse 39. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Verse 41, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. These days later, three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at the understanding and his answers. And his parents didn't know what to think. "'Son,' his mother said to him, "'why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere.' "'But why did you need to search?' he asked. "'Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house?' but they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. When I read that, I wonder, how did Mary punish Jesus? How do you punish God? You're, uh, you're, you're going to bed with no meal today. I want you to stand in the corner, um, I'm going to count to three. What do they, what do, they do? But as we, as we dig into the scripture, knowing that they attend these, these meetings, these, these times in Jerusalem, and it was an annual Passover festival. And so the, everybody was required to go. And Jesus, being of age now, of 12, he would have more freedom than, than a child would to be able to go about things because he's considered an adult. Just about. And so the process goes. They come, they celebrate, they do those things, and then they, they make their way back home. It's not uncommon during this time for the women to gather the children begin to leave first. They would leave first. be traveled slower. They had the kids. The men would stay back oftentimes and, and stay in the temple, maybe, maybe learn a little bit more about the scriptures, talk among themselves, do the things that they do. And they would join them that evening in a later place. And so it, it's now possible that, that Joseph figured that Jesus left with Mary, and Mary figured Jesus is back with Joseph. Hanging out, doing the things they're doing. And so it's not until they meet that they realize that Jesus is not there. And so they begin to look for him. Joseph, it's your responsibility to watch him. What are you doing? How come you didn't? Well, Mary, you're the mother. You shouldn't take care of this. You know, what's great about it to me is that here you have the holy couple with a lack of communication. And so, you know, it helps all of us in our marriages to know if they can't do it right, then we feel good about ourselves too. Now, yes, there's some distance in there, but, but you know, where is Jesus? And so they go back, and they find him, and he's in the temple. And he's, he's and now, now you see sometimes movies that you see him up front or on a pulpit or sometime teaching. It's not what the scripture says. It says he's sitting there among the teachers, and he's listening. He's answering questions. He's talking questions. He's asking questions. He's interacting with them. And again, listen to what they say. As he's doing that, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And and so Mary finds him in there and, and says, son, what have you, why have you done this to us? And <laughs> if I had said this to my mother, um, um, why do you got to go, why are you looking for me? Yeah, I would never have been here. Um, but, the, uh, but he says, I have to be in my father's house. Now, there are commentators, and you can read all kind of them, That there's a lot of thinking and, and thinking of what he meant by that. But just let me tell you this, what Luke says. But they didn't understand what he meant. So let's not try to understand what he meant. Let's just understand that he knew he knew about his father's business. He was there learning scripture. He was studying and he was there. Now, I think Luke adds this here to help all of us in our parenting. Because then he says, then he returned to Nazareth and with them. And Jesus was obedient to his parents. Well, praise God. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. You ever wonder what our mothers stole or stored in the hearts about you guys? Have you ever thought about that? But they didn't. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. There's a song that I've heard often sung. It says, Jesus is an ordinary child. And I know the concept of the song, that he was just a, a child. But I read this, and I look at the shepherds. And they, they experienced Jesus as a baby. This is a child. But because of all that's involved, the message of him being the Messiah, the... the emphasis on that and this excitement that they were given that that they run off and they're telling everybody about this and all the people that hear them are amazed at what they're saying that this child is the truth and they're amazed by it we see here that Jesus is sitting among these scholarly these men that have been studying scripture uh, since they could read and that that's their job I mean that's their job to sit there and read scripture and to study it and here Jesus is interacting with them and they're impressed with his knowledge and his understanding. And it says that they are amazed. And then his parents look at him and say, I don't know what to do with him. As as I look at that, I don't see an ordinary child. I see an extraordinary child. I see an extraordinary child who is about to change the world forever one that was going to make such an impression that we stand here in this room some 2,000 years later still talking about him. He, he's not an ordinary child. He astonished people with their testimonies. The people were amazed at his understanding. His parents were, the, the same Greek word really when they said, I don't know what to do with him or I don't know what to think. It's the same concept of being astonished or amazed. So we hear all of this. And so we got to ask ourselves, are we still not astonished by his grace and the power of his forgiveness? Are we not still amazed at the love of him revealed in scripture when we read it? Have we not experienced and seen a life changed so powerfully that we're so overwhelmed that we say, I don't know what to think. Critics and, and even church leaders throughout the process of, have talked about the church losing its focus and its, and its impression on society. And that, that in, in, in years to come, it, it's going to disappear and not be a viable institution anymore. That it's not relevant to people today. It, it is not meeting the needs of our newer, congreg- newer people. So I, I, I think about this too. How could grace not be relevant How could loving other people not meet the need? How could change lives not make an impression on people? See, I don't think that the problem that they may be talking about of the church is a lack of relevance or the fact that it doesn't know how to meet the needs. I think the greatest thing that is missing that I see through these first two chapters that these people had is passion. They were excited. The the shepherds were so excited that even though of their lowly state and society, people were astonished by what they had to say. Even the most powerful and educated people who listened to Jesus were amazed. And his parents continued to go, I don't know what to think. Here you have Jesus teaching, love, forgiveness. His two key components to his whole teaching was to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says the entire law is summed up in that. So if you have an issue, if you don't know what to do, you take those two things, you apply it, you have your answer. How is that not relevant? How does that not meet the need? I think that the the thing that we lack today is passion. There was a pastor who who once... uh, Preached and talked about, he said, every time the word is shared, there's three three responses. People are either glad, sad, or mad. One of the three. I think there's a fourth. I think they can be glad. I think they can be sad. I think they get mad. But I think there's a fourth one, they can be complacent. They can be non-committal. It is what it is. I punch my time clock on a Sunday morning. It's okay. I've done my part. I've sang a few songs. I listened to somebody, somebody talk, and now we'll go to lunch. I, I, I think there's there's something that's happened in our culture in our society. We are so busy. We are so busy that that do you realize that you know 40 years, 50 years ago, 24 hours is the same as it is today? That ain't changed. It's just what we put into it. And, and so we, we, look at, we look at all of this, and, and in Revelation, in the third chapter, Jesus is talking to some of the leaders of each of the churches in modern-day Turkey, what the time was called Asia Minor. And in the last church, in chapter, uh, chapter 3, he talks about the church in Laodicea. And I, I know he picked that last one for a particular reason, because he has the toughest words for them. He says that they're lukewarm. He said, you're neither hot, nor cold. I would rather have you one or the other, but since you're not and you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, that would be scary to me. That Jesus looks at our life and he says that we are lukewarm? Is that what the church is today? Have we lost the passion and just become lukewarm? We, we talk about and, and stand at the pulpits of churches all over the country asking for volunteers to do things. We preach what we believe are powerful sermons about commitment and, and getting involved with the things that we need to do. We, we develop real clever programs hoping that we'll draw people. Pastors go to these seminars, try to glean new ideas from these guys who've built massive churches, trying to find the answer that we've been missing or what we've been doing. But I think through the years, the one thing I've learned that that commitment and motivation never come if there's not passion involved in it. Nobody's going to commit to something. Nobody's going to be motivated unless they're passionate about it. And if they're not passionate about it, there's a good chance they're not going to be motivated. So I look at the the ending part of his his message to the church in Laodicea. Because the one thing about Jesus, he he tells them what's wrong. You remember the report cards we used to get in, in, in school? You remember them? Yeah. You know, the mind used to say, you know, Don's a good student, just, just doesn't live up to his potential. I wish he'd pay attention more or whatever. And then there would be something on the bottom which would say, here's some ideas to help. Well, Jesus already told this church, you're a lurk woman about to spit you out of my mouth, but here's what I want you to do. He says here, though, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. In other words, Get excited about what you were once excited about. Get passionate about the gospel of Jesus. Get excited about what's going to happen, what the promises are. So the question is, what is passion? What does passion really mean? I Googled it. Um, I know some of you might be surprised about that, but I did. It it took a while for me to, to figure out how to do that, but I did. And it says an intense desire or enthusiasm for something an intense desire for something That's passion in my near the end of my first semester in college i had moved from southern california i was involved in the music industry i had um, lived probably pretty wild life um, i left to go to college I had found Jesus, kind of, and I was moving. I moved there, and I was sitting there in, in the Denny's restaurant, talking to some friends, and school was tough. I didn't like it. It fit in. I didn't understand. You know, I had hardly read the Bible before I went to college. I went to get away thinking that I could um, move someplace else and life would change. You can change the scenery, but if you don't change you, it do not seem, right? So, so I'm sitting over there, and I don't like tests. I don't get it. And, and what is this about this 19-year-old guy walking in, opening my dorm door to see if I'm in bed at 10 o'clock, and if I'm not, he gives me a demerit so that I have to stay in my room for the whole weekend? I don't get this. I'm 28 years old. You know, I don't need a 19-year-old kid telling me what to do. This is just not for me. So you know, my friends tried to encourage me and say, you know, don't give up so quickly. Hang in there. We can we can do it. And I had pretty much made that time I left. We had six, seven weeks to go before, before we were at mid, mid-term type of thing. Just finished that before the semester. And I pretty much said, I'm going to return home. About a week and a half later, right after a, a class, the professor asked to see me in his office. And he said, um, we, we all had uh, counselors or, or kind of guidance people to help us during the college time. And so he wanted to talk to me. And so I went in there and, and, and sat there in front of him. And he said, well, how's things going? How are you doing? I'm thinking. I bet some of my friends told him because you know we're in a small college, 200, 250 people at the most. So everybody knew everybody. So it was it was really an interesting. Thing. So he was sitting there and he goes, "How you doing?" And I said, "I said, Otis, I, I, it's just not for me. I don't know anything about the Bible. I've never read it. I mean, I'm I'm trying to read it, but I don't get it. I." I the tests drive me crazy. I don't know how to study. I've never been a good studier. This is just, it's just not for me. I mean, you signed me up for pastoral ministries. I have no desire, and I'll never be a pastor. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to do this. I, I'm just tired. And he says, Will you, he says, let's pause, and he says, I'm going to give you two questions. I'm going to ask you one now, and you'll take one home with you." First question I want to ask you is, why are you here? What brought you here? I said, well, I wanted to escape my life. There was too much temptation. There was too much stuff there. I, needed to, I wanted a clean slate. He said, okay, that's good. He said, have you found it? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm not happy. It's, I don't like it here. It, it, uh, I don't know. I don't know. He says, well, you know, Don, it's not about the tests, not about your studies. It's about why you should really be here. Are you here really to learn more about Jesus or to escape something? I want you to think about that. He says, the next one, I don't want you to answer right now. But when we come back in, now that, it happened at the exact same time last time. (laughs) Anyway, he wanted to know, what are you passionate about? What are you truly passionate about? And then when you find that out, I want you to compare that with your reaction to Jesus. And he says, I want you to do that, and when you come back in the six weeks at the semester, if you still want to leave, I'll sign the papers and we'll let you go. But I really believe if you do this, and we do this, we'll talk, you'll do another semester. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So I thought about it. What am I really passionate about? Well, sports is one. I'm a, I grew up in L.A., Angel fan, Dodger fan, Laker fan, all those. I mean, but, you know, they were, they were moments. They were, they were moments. You know, once the season was over, you kind of went on and did something else. So it was it a was moment. But I realized at the age of 12, until today, and in two days I'll be 63 years old, for over, almost over 50 years, my passion has been music. I love music. From the moment that I went into the bedroom of my best friend in junior high, and he put on a Beatle record, Rubber Soul, and I heard for the first time in my life by the Beatles, That's all I wanted to do was the music. We picked up the guitar. He taught me the little riffs. He taught me how to play those things. We formed a little band together. We played, music became everything to me. I I found out soon that there were all kinds of styles of music. There was rock, there was pop, there was soul, there was heavy metal, there was (coughs) country. Uh, um, (coughs) it still get stuck here. There's all kinds of music. All kinds of music and And then I realized that on the radio they would they would play the top thirty, and they would count down in year. so I began to get get notebooks and keep track of that and 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 a, a year later, I was introduced to Casey Kasem's American Top forty. Listen to it every Sunday morning. never stop. i would I would not go anywhere on a Wednesday night because that was the local. T- Countdown, and I never went anyplace Sunday morning, which told you about my church attendance, because Casey Kasem was there. I have volumes of notebooks, of of charted records, and boxes of them, boxes of them. I I I could tell you the number one song from 1964 to 1979, the number one song in there. I could do all of those things. I would stand in line to go to a concert, sleep on the concrete so that I could get a seat to sit for two hours, paying an exorbitant amount of money to listen to a concert and then be done in two hours and then not be able to hear for the next week. I loved that. Those were the things that I wanted to do. I bought every type of paraphernalia, every type of thing you could get for the Beatles, for all the things that I wanted. I have boxes and boxes and boxes of them. My wife allowed me to start putting a few things up in our den she doesn't have a den anymore. <laughs> that was my... So I thought, okay, there's that. Okay, that's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love. So let me, let's let take Jesus, and let's fit him in that picture. First of all, the Bible was not a... Bible was a chore for me to read. It was not a joy. I did not understand it. The King James sounded like they had a lisp all the time, and I never got it. Now, early on, somebody had given me... A, Now, this is really going to date the time, but anybody remember the way back in the 70s? (laughs) I mean, that was some dad who said, you know, King James ain't getting it for my kids, so here's what it says. Well, that's the only Bible I had ever read in my life up until that point. Um, Now, I was introduced to the New International Version in college, and that still didn't make any sense to me. So it was a chore for me to read. When I would go to chapel or church services, I didn't get it. I would look around, and I'd see some people sitting, Some people standing and raising their hands and waving. And I understand I came from a very conservative Church of God college where you didn't, if you've been in Church of God much, you know you don't stand and you don't wave your hand. And so if you did, you either were asked to go to the bathroom or you needed to be, whatever. But that didn't happen. But I would look at them and I would go, why are they doing that? And I was more focused on what other people were doing than what I should have been doing. And I soon realized, as I began to look at all those and examine those things, that life really centered around me. The world revolved around me. If I was happy, everything was there. If people treated me good, I liked them. If if they didn't, well, then the beep with them. I don't want anything to do with them. Life was about me. You remember, at times, you have to have changes, major changes in your life. So I came back six weeks later at the end of the semester, and I shared those with the professor. He says, I'm going to ask you to give one more semester. I'm going to ask you to do these things, and let's see what happens. He said, I want you to start reading the Bible differently. Read the Bible as if it was a top 30 chart thing. Read it as if Casey Kasem wrote it. So I began to do that. I began to read, and I began to, 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 instead of just reading it, think beyond that. What was David thinking? I'm going to go meet the Goliath with a couple stones. I mean, Larry Taylor and I at one of the airports met this college football player who I stood up again. I was nose to nose with his belt buckle. And this guy is huge. I couldn't see anything around him. And this guy ain't half the size of Goliath. And why is David walking out there with a couple stones with an incredible faith in God and say, that's enough? Why? I want to know more about David. Who is he? And so I started pulling out books. I started getting maps, and I started charting all the places that they went. I started getting commentaries, and I began to read historically what was going on at the time. And it became fascinating. And before long, I couldn't get enough of the history. All of a sudden, the Old Testament just consumed me. I wanted more and more and more of it. And, you know, the more I understood the Old Testament, the more I understood Jesus and why he had to have a sacrifice. I understood what he meant by the blood of Christ. I began to understand more, and it became alive to me. I began to invest, and before long, I couldn't wait for my devotion time in the morning. I wanted more and more of it. I'd come home, and I'd begin to, back to the door, I'm trying to study more and more. He had told me two other things to do. He asked me to do a study of what true worship was. What does true worship mean? He said, I, don't want, I want you to study scripture, and then I want you to say, what is lordship? And I said, I, I have no idea how to do that. I know I have no idea how to start to even do that. He said, well, the beginning's the best place to start. So I began to look, I began to study what worship was. I had grown up through the church in my few years to understand that worship was the music. If, um... If we left the church and we said we had a good worship service, we talked about we had some good songs. I realized that worship is not just isolated to music. I began to realize that worship is our intimate response to God. You see, I worshiped the music. Everything I thought about was music. Worship of music came out of me. In the same way, worship of Jesus has to be beyond the 15 minutes that we sing a few songs or the 30 minutes that we listen to somebody talk to us or the the 30 hour and a half that we may stand here. Worship begins the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep and we dream worship. We experience Jesus in such a way that he becomes vital to every part of our lives. He becomes instrumental in my decisions, in my process, and everything that I do, it's about Jesus. And because I lift him up that way, that is worship. And so I, I learned to be able to be able to to experience and like the Christian music, even though it was not my favorite style. I was able to, to, to sing the hymns, even though they weren't my things. I began to I began to study the hymns and realize what a powerful testimony of people in those songs. I began to understand, want to know more about the guys and how they wrote that. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Here's a man whose life was torn apart. I began, and so I began to say, it doesn't matter what what we sing because I could remember going to concerts. I took my sister to a Barry Manilow concert, never been more embarrassed in my entire life. And I was worried that other people were going to see me there. But you know what? Halfway through that concert, I was standing up like everybody else because he was, he engaged us. He, he involved us, and that's the way. Our worship team engages you to join them in a worship experience that we lift up Jesus through the power of song. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end in the Word of God after we say amen. It's when we walk out that we still continue to worship him. And all of that leads up to the understanding of what lordship in Jesus Christ means. It means that you take the cent- you out of the center of your life and you put Jesus right where he belongs. And that our world revolves around Jesus. Now, for me, that was instrumental. It was just like discovering that the world was not flat and that the solar system didn't revolve around the earth. To get me out of the way was a challenge, and it sometimes still is. I tend to be a very selfish, narcissistic type of individual. Um, ask my wife. Um, but I learned what it was idea to put Jesus in the middle. That I start my day with, with asking Jesus to guide me through this time. So as that process grew, I began to more and more, and, and all of a sudden, you know, everything else began to fit in. I began to understand the lectures of the the professors more. I never was a good test taker, and I still probably never will be, but I did understand. But I was benefited by the fact I was in a small college and the professors tried to help me. In fact, some of them probably regret ever having me start answering questions because I questioned everything. I wanted to learn. I was so excited about it. And so life changed because I was able then to realize, do I still have a passion for music? Yes. Do I still listen to Cool 101.5 on the way to work? Yes. Can I still tell you most of all the songs that are played on that? Yes. Probably can tell you what I was doing at the time some of them were playing. I could probably tell you the chart record of some of them that were playing. But the fact is that my life does not revolve around it anymore. It is a part of it, but Jesus is the center. He is what empowers every part of what I have to do. And I cannot be anything without him. And because of that, I am passionate about serving him. And so as we close this morning, the question to ask you is what are you passionate about? What is it that gets you motivated and excited? What gets you off that that you would actually get off from something that you're doing and go out and do it in the rain, in a bad time, that you'd be so excited that you'd go do? What is it that makes you tick? What is it that you're so passionate about? And then do the same thing that professor asked me to do. Compare that to your reaction with Jesus. And then see if you can bring a balance. And once the Jesus becomes up there, I guarantee you, your life will never be the same. Will it be perfect? No. But the fact is that when times come tough, he gives you the tools and he actually teaches you how to use them to go to battle against the things that happen. So that's I leave you with that this morning. What are you passionate about? And compare that with Jesus.